We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Coming up on today's programme, dirty air, centralised government. No, I'm not talking about China, where the UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverley is touching down for a visit, though we will be discussing that. We're going to be bringing you an interview on the expansion of ULES, London's ultra-low emission zone, which controversially kicks in today. That conversation between Stephen and Simon Burkett, founder of Clean Air London, will be bringing you shortly. First, though, we're getting to perhaps the crunchy, interesting details of what Labour's policies might look like as we inch towards conference season. Uh, we've had the interview in the Sunday Telegraph, the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Rees ruling out wealth taxes, indeed promising that Labour wouldn't add to the already record tax burden at all, inevitably prompting questions about how her party would pay for its spending commitments if elected. Lizzie, I can imagine you poring over the words uh, that were in the Sunday Telegraph to see, <laughs> to, to add to what we knew already. Of course, you spoke to Rachel Reeves not that long ago about their um, policies as well. This is an interesting uh, move by Labour. Are we are we getting close to seeing perhaps a greater architecture of what the tax policy is going to look like? Well, look, it raises the question of whether the Office for Budget Responsibility, the UK's fiscal watchdog, should be costing both the main parties fiscal proposals. In fact, the former head of the Office for Budget Responsibility, Robert Choate, suggested to our colleague, Philip Aldrich, that they should do just that. And it sounds sensible, but I was intrigued to discover just how small the OBR is compared to its international counterparts. If you look at the staffing numbers, it just wouldn't be feasible at the moment. Did you know, Stephen, that the Dutch budget watchdog has more than three times as many staff as the OBR? Now, and what's the Dutch budget watchdog called? Does it have an amazing acronym as well? Maybe it does, but don't even try <laughs> me on my Dutch. But guess how many staff the OBR has? Uh, 100? 45. Oh. Which is a bit puny, isn't it? But when you've got an election around the corner that looks like it's going to be a close call and when the polls are suggesting that there is going to be a change of government, I feel like you have to ask, wouldn't the responsible choice be to put a little more resource into it? Yeah, I suppose give an office the possibility of being able to cast both sides' proposals perhaps might give voters a bit more clarity Mm. going into that um, election as well. Ewan's not here today, but if he was, I'm sure he'd be screaming fiscal drag in our years um, as, of course, no matter what proposals the... Uh, next government put in place for tax. The fact they're freezing the tax thresholds means we'll all be paying more anyway, especially as wages are going up. But let's turn to other matters now. The Foreign Secretary on his way to China today. James Cleverly is planning, we're told, to further UK national interests during the visit, including cyber, international security and human rights. He'll be the most senior British diplomat to visit China in six years. And to discuss, we're joined by our UK government editor, Alex Morales, and Sophia Hortia-Costa, who's now part of our Markets Today team, but until very recently was based in Hong Kong covering China for Bloomberg's. We're drawing on both of your expertise to set up this uh, discussion for us. Alex, how important is this trip for the UK? 
Well, look, I mean, it's the first trip by a foreign secretary to China in five years. Um, China's the second biggest economy in the world, and, and you can't really ignore it, which is the argument the government makes. Um, it's an important economic relationship, um, but it's, it's also important to engage with, climate, uh, with China on issues like climate change, Russia and Ukraine, um, and obviously the UK has an interest in what happens in Hong Kong and, and other things. So, you know, it's, it's an important trip. Um, and you could you could say it's got sort of two two sort of aims. One is on the diplomatic side. Um, the UK wants to keep China on board with, you know, not being too aggressive in Taiwan. It wants to make sure it doesn't get too involved in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, and as I mentioned before, climate change. Um, but then there's also the economic um, side of things. It's a very important economic relationship. Britain, post-Brexit, wants to show that there are benefits um, to leaving the European Union. And there's a sort of pivot to the Indo-Pacific. Um, part of that you're seeing, um, we're negotiating a trade deal with India. But, but, you know, also there's an important economic relationship with China. So, Sophia, Alex says that Britain can't ignore China, but what's the view of Britain from China? Do they even care about us? I love that question. I mean, they, they do. It's I, th I would say it's a much more, um, it's a far more important meeting from the UK side than it is for China. But given the context of China really trying to shore up confidence among foreign investors and saying, hey, we're open for business after they scrapped COVID zero at the end of last year, um, and really kind of trying to re-engage with the West, this is another important meeting um, for officials in Beijing. So I would say less important than it is for the UK, but any ally is a good ally and does come on the back of, um, you know, most G7 uh, economies or sending a leader at least or um, a senior representative to China. So I would say this is another one. Um, and shoring up confidence, I mean, really saying, hey, um, people do want to visit us, people want to engage with us on the economic side of things, um, will be a, a lot more important than a diplomacy. I think the diplomatic um, relationship with, with the UK um, is just more a war of words than, than anything else from the China side. Mm, interesting. And of course, we've got the US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in China at the moment as well. That's, that's a, a visit of a very different tone too, given the uh, tensions in the US-China relationship. Will that be, make things quite different from, uh, for James Cleverly? I mean, I do think, um, at least in Beijing, there's a sense that the US kind of opened um, the ground or opened the door for the UK to visit. Uh, there is a sense that the UK follows whatever the US says. Um, I'm sure the UK uh, has a response to that. Um, but it is an important, I mean, it, it is at a time when the US-China relationship seems to be maybe not repairing itself, but at least re-engaging. Um, when Biden kind of uh, signaled this with the de-risking slogan that now everyone's using, you know, this is what uh, the the new US approach is, where they can separate. And Raimondo did this. She separated the uh, engagement with China on the trade and economic front from the diplomatic and political front. And if the UK can do this successfully as well, um, that kind of sets the tone. So Alex, that's the difference between the UK and the US positions and the similarities as well. What's the difference between Sunak's position on China from his predecessors? Because, of course, James Cleverly also served under Liz Trust, the China hawk. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it's sort of tricky. I mean, we're, we're clearly a long way from the golden era that was hailed. I think you remember probably eight or nine years ago by David Cameron and George Osborne, where mm. they said, you know, we're entering a golden year, uh, era of relations with China. They were going to promote trade and all sorts of other things. Um, but but since then, there's been, been a retreat. And, and, you know, 
not just by Truss, who you mentioned, who is the China skeptic, but, you know, under Theresa May, we retreated from letting Chinese companies have involvement in our nuclear industry. Under Boris Johnson, who, who used to protest, I'm not a uh, Sinophobe, um, but he also retreated under considerable pressure from his party from Chinese involvement in UK's 5G networks. So mm. it's, it's fair to say it's been a pretty spiky relationship um, of late, n not least because of China's crackdown in Hong Kong, um, its proximity to Russia and the, and the growing suspicion domestically of Chinese involvement in those critical national industries. Um, Truss, as you say, was a, was a China hawk. Um, you know, she didn't really have time to <laughs> to set a Chinese policy for the UK. She was only a power for seven seven weeks, and it's fair to say that Sunak is is sort of more pra more pragmatic, is how he would describe it, um, about the UK's relationship with China. You have to engage with China, but you also have to sort of be suspicious about these uh, about Chinese involvement in those industries that we talked about. So, of all those predecessors, who's he most like? <laughs> Tough to say. I mean, he's he's not like Truss. I mean, I, I guess you could you could argue that Theresa May, Boris Johnson, and Rishi Sunak were pretty similar um, in their approaches to China, in that they they felt you need the need to engage with it, but also to keep it at arm's length when it comes to certain certain um, bits of the UK economy. Is this actually important to voters here in the UK, or how do you see the government trying to spin this trip to look advantageous or interesting to voters here? Um, I think it's probably fair to say that voters don't really care that much about um, the UK's relationship with China. I mean, I'm sure there's a very tiny percentage of voters who do care. Um, but, you know, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Inflation is still high. The economy is pretty stagnant. The NHS, uh, the National Health Service waiting lists are, are at record levels. Um, and immigration's back in the headlines it, to an extent that it hasn't really been since this, this sort of Brexit years. So, yeah, voters have a lot more things on their mind. Um, but that's said, you know, foreign policy goes on. Foreign policy isn't often a vote winner, um, but the government still needs to engage with other countries. Sophia, should the British public care more about UK-China policy? You know, should, be we, should we be more worried about the transfer effect of Chinese economic weakness or China's semiconductor policy, for example? I think what's interesting since I moved back here, Lizzie, is that um, what tends to grab people's attention is actually uh, the things that don't matter for the UK's economy. So, for example, uh, Alex mentioned earlier Taiwan. It's uh, I found it to be an, an obsession here. Uh, people are incredibly interested with what China is doing. Taiwan, Xinjiang as well, um, and Hong Kong. The crackdown there, uh, which um, you know I was there when it happened and and saw saw it uh, really firsthand. Um, but actually, what matters for the UK is more what is agreed on the trade uh, side of things. Um, let's not forget also um, that the US uh, has almost strong strong armed its allies into following uh, the curbs on Chinese tech, and that is what matters. Uh, the the I, I think I think the British public should perhaps pay more attention to that. Um, but it tends to ask a lot of questions over um, things that would honestly be dismissed in Beijing as just the UK meddling in its business. Alex, what will cleverly be, you know, what can he do to make this look like a successful trip? Is it ultimately, ultimately just a, a photo op? Um, I think that's probably a, a slightly unfair characterization. It's not just a photo op, but he's he's also not planning to come back with some big piece of paper that he's going to wave in the air and said, "I've agreed this with China." Um, he, he, you know, it's it's it'll be his first meeting with the Chinese Foreign Secretary. Um, you know, for him, it's it's about making sure that China um, isn't too bellicose towards Taiwan. Um, that China 
doesn't move too much towards Russia in the in the Ukraine conflict, um, that he keeps Chinese engagement in the climate change thing. It's it's sort of all those things, but there's no grand um, out overarching goal from this trip. Sophia, any chance we're going to get a reciprocal visit anytime soon? It's it's interesting because the visit so far, or at least the meeting so far, have been very much hosted by China um, rather than the other way around. So I would say, though, um, if this goes well, um, this could set the stage for the first one-on-one meeting between Sunak and Xi Jinping at the G20. And that would be, um, I think, a much bigger deal because he is, Sunak is the only G7 leader who hasn't met Xi face-to-face since China opened its borders. And um, I mean... That would be, I think, more significant and symbolic. Okay, Sofia Jorge Costa and Alex Morales, thank you to you both for covering those various perspectives of that trip. And we'll bring you more details of James Cleverly's uh, journey to China uh, as we get it later in the week. Now, today, London's ultra-low emission zone becomes the largest pollution-charging zone in the world. It's the latest expansion of the area, which will see older polluting cars charged a fee to drive in Greater London. The policy has attracted some criticism, but it's also credited with the Conservatives holding their seat in the recent Uxbridge by-election. We've been discussing it with Simon Burkett, the founder of Clean Air London. And given the backlash, Stephen started by asking him whether he felt the scheme was a success. Well, this this will be the ninth phase of emission zones in London. So it's worth looking at, at that perspective over more than 15 years. Um, it has been, or together, they've been very effective at um, uh, reducing the number of diesel vehicles, um, in particular cars, for example, that have been first registered in London. So the number of those has fallen by something like 90% since the peak of 2015-16 to just over 5,000 last year. But what the um, emission zones have done is target exhaust emissions, and the latest version targets the Euro 6 emission standard for diesel vehicles. This is an issue that has come into greater, perhaps, political debate in the wake of the Uxbridge by-election, which is seen as one of the key issues there that had the Conservatives retained their seat as they campaigned against it. Has it made you rethink, perhaps, how we need to sell policies like you, Les, to voters? Well, I think uh, the leaders of both the main political parties uh, got a bit overexcited after the the Uxbridge by-election. The um, uh, Conservative Prime Minister... Uh, went out and I think he made front page headlines a few days later saying he was on the motorist side, uh, which I think will be a rod which comes back to to beat him. Uh, And Keir Starmer um, seemed to backtrack on clean air zones where, um, you know, the current government decided many years ago that clean air zones are actually the the best way to reduce um, uh, emissions and concentrations in the end of nitrogen dioxide, a, a toxic gas. So, I think both of them um, uh, made mistakes. I think the silver lining that I would see is that because of those mistakes, I think what it's going to force, for example, is um, uh, Keir Starmer to do his homework um, about uh, what actually the problems are and the solutions, and also to think more carefully about his communications um, on these important issues, because the environment, climate and um, uh, you know, 
um, air pollution, you know, will be one of the top, well, energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election coming ahead. So I think there really is a silver lining to to all that um, uh, kerfuffle that took place immediately after the Uxbridge by-election. Could this rollout have been better handled, do you think? Um, uh, well, it, it's a big measure. Um, we need big um, solutions to tackle big problems. I think it's worth bearing in mind that, that London has a very big problem with nitrogen dioxide. Uh, you know, as, as recently as 2014, um, one of the scientists was saying that, that we probably had the highest levels of nitrogen dioxide, a toxic gas in the world. Um, you know, these successive um, emission zones culminating in the latest phase today um, have greatly reduced that harmful pollutant, probably by about two thirds uh, since the peak in, in 2014. So um, the, these are big measures um, uh, which tackle big problems uh, and there will always be some discussion around them. So I'm, I'm not entirely surprised uh, by the discussion we've seen, but clearly the Uxbridge by-election sort of just, you know, it was a particular set of circumstances and um, both sides got overexcited, I would say. Could it actually serve perhaps to strengthen the case for ULAS zones? London isn't the only part of the UK looking at these sort of uh, pollution charging areas. Do you think that having a, a more perhaps robust debate about them might strengthen the case for implementation? Well, I think we need to distinguish between congestion measures and emission measures. They're sort of two overlapping circles. Um, uh, London has a very small congestion charging zone and has uh, uh, these big emission zones. Um, you know, the government did a great deal of work um, after it lost in the Supreme Court in 2015 about, um, uh, you know, breaching nitrogen dioxide laws. And it found that the um, uh, cheapest way, most cost effective way to comply with these laws is actually to introduce clean air zones. Um, there are about a dozen cities in the UK which have been identified for that. You know, the government's done that already. Um, we've got something, uh, you know, akin to the one in London, uh, in Bristol and Birmingham, uh, but they're very small zones, really. Um, what we're seeing more more frequently and will see more likely, I think, in the future um, is really these emission zones targeting the larger vehicles. You know, London has got a very specific um, problem that is, you know, um, a big problem from big cities. And I think the lessons really will be seen uh, probably in other cities like Paris and Brussels who will follow London uh, probably over the next year or two. The Mayor Sadiq Khan has come under a lot of criticism over this policy, even from his own party. How would you rate his performance? Um, uh, well, Cleaner in London campaigns for clean air. Um, um, I work with all the uh, political parties and had good relationships um, over uh, more than 15 years by sort of sticking to the facts. Um, Clean Air in London is a strong supporter of this uh, expansion of the ultra-low emission zone today. It is an important step on the path to phasing out uh, diesel in London. Uh, we're well on the way to that. Uh, and I think the Mayor deserves credit for, for sticking with this policy. It is an important public health policy. Uh, and I think it's really uh, worth remembering that air pollution is one of the greatest environmental health risks. Uh, and that's what the mayor has made a personal priority. Um, and it's helped him win two elections so far. You've talked about the the step on a road to 
getting rid of, of uh, emitting cars. The business secretary, Kemi Badenox, recently said she's weighing pushing back the 2030 deadline for all new vehicles to be petrol and diesel free. What's your view on that? Well, I think we've we've seen the, the vehicle manufacturers react very badly to that. It just sort of creates uncertainty. I mean, you know, um, we know, I mean, the World Health Organization classified diesel exhaust as carcinogenic uh, in 2012. Um, we know we're going to be getting rid of um, uh, fossil fuel emissions sooner or later. Uh, and I don't think it does any help, uh, doesn't help anyone to sort of um, uh, you know, create confusion about those deadlines, least of all, frankly, um, either the manufacturers or those who are thinking about buying cars. Uh, you know, what Cleaner in London would really like the candidates for Mayor of London uh, in May next year to do is really discourage people from buying these diesel vehicles in the first place. And they could do that by saying that they, ha- they have a vision uh, for London to be diesel free by 2030. And I think that would be a really positive thing because it would help uh, a great many people. Do you have, uh, from what you've seen from the candidates so far, and I appreciate that there many of the parties are still on their selection processes, are you inspired by any of the particular candidates that you've seen? Um, uh, I try not to comment too much about the politics, but I, I, you know, I think the real thing is that in the last three mayoral elections, air pollution has been one of the top three issues in those three elections. Um, it's certain to be one of the top three again, uh, and it may well even be the top issue. So uh, I think the candidates really do need to focus on how they're going to achieve clean air, because you know London is is um, you know London voters really care about this, and and that's what we've seen for many years. Has you've been campaigning on these issues for seventeen years? Are you more or less optimistic now? about the progress being made on policies to improve air quality? Uh, I've been extremely pleased by the progress made over that time. Uh, when I started uh, campaigning in, in 2006, um, uh, air pollution was about three or four times higher um, along the busy roads, uh, nitrogen dioxide pollution. Um, and through pushing for diesel measures, action by successive mayors, uh, we've really seen that um, uh, very big reduction. Um, we, London had just about complied with the World Health Organization's guidelines um, uh, for air quality uh, in 2021, so I sort of almost completed my mission. Um, but then after um, uh, they produced new guidelines, uh, which were about half for particles and slashed them for nitrogen dioxide. So I may have another 15 years of work to do uh, to get the other two thirds down from uh, the current levels of say 30 micrograms per cubic meter. Um, but you know what we need to tackle is not just vehicle emissions, but building emissions are the other um, elephant or the big elephant um, in the room. Um, and that's really about gas, heating and cooking. And I think you'll see that um, Chris Stark, I'm sure, of the Climate Change Committee, w- would see that they've had um, quite a lot of um, uh, um, debate, let me put it that way, around, for example, gas boilers. We've seen complaints about onshore wind turbines, um, the possibility of a referendum on the um, UK's net zero target. But but in the end, um, the, the facts are the facts. You know, the science is showing that um, human activity is contributing to global warming. Uh, we need a 
to go down a path to eliminate fossil fuels um, over the next um, uh, 10, 20 years. Um, and that's what we must do because the consequences of not doing so, the costs of not doing so are absolutely enormous. Do the next generation of policymakers take that these issues seriously enough and do you feel that they're ambitious enough to be able to tackle this? Uh, well, I think they need to be a lot more ambitious. I've been very disappointed that um, you know successive governments have not given more powers to metro mayors and local authorities to tackle building emissions, you know, to require zero and ultra low um, uh, emission buildings, uh, because these are responsible, say, for about um, you know seventy or eighty percent of the greenhouse gases um, actually emitted within London, a uh, city like London. Um, so we do need a lot more ambition level. But what is good to see is that, for example, when the prime minister has been put under pressure to you know, have a referendum on the UK's net zero target or, or, or so on in 2050, he's backed away from that. And, and that's because there is actually strong cross-party support um, in parliament. Uh, and amongst the public, I think uh, generally there's um, strong um, uh, general support. Uh, for taking climate action. Um, so uh, yes, there will be differences between the parties. Um, those will be um, um, amplified, of course, in the run up to a general election. Uh, but I think we're going in this general election, but we definitely do need more ambition. There's no doubt about that. So that was Simon Burkett, the founder of Clean Air London, speaking to me about the expansion of the ultra low emission zone. Look, I think really interesting pause for thought in there including on what needs to be done next and that's the the kind of element of this we have to remember there's been so much hoo-ha about the extension of Vuelez to Greater London in fact it needs to go further there are laws and rules coming down the line that require bigger changes to the, the cars on the roads and London is going to be the place where that's going to have to be tried out first simply for concentration rules so lots of food for thought I think in that conversation as well Indeed, controversial stuff That's it from us for today If you like the programme don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen This episode was produced by James Wilcock Our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain I'm Stephen Carroll And I'm Lizzie Bird and we'll be back with more tomorrow This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.